right. Um, uh, thanks a lot, and, and my uh, thanks a lot, Esther, and my my pleasure to be here. So I'll just a little bit more about my own background vis-a-vis -vis history and games, and uh, and and game design, and then I'll show some some slides and try as quickly as I can to give you um, some thoughts on a recipe for for historical board game design. And uh, given what you've already done in this course so far, I'll be interested to get any reactions you may have. So I um, uh, have been a hobby board war gamer for many, many decades. I started in the 1970s in, in grade school. And that uh, interest, that hobby contributed a lot to my uh, choice to, to major in history and also in international relations, um, undergrad for both of those, graduate program in foreign service, and then another and another um, graduate uh, uh, program in history, and so I'm I'm not a trained historian, but I sure sure love the the study and exploration of history and using games to me is among the most powerful ways to do that, and I'll mention a little bit why why I think so, and uh, that all also overlapped those interests with my intelligence career that um, the professor mentioned. Uh, the last third or so of which involved uh, teaching in the classroom as well as uh, assisting analysts in what they were in what they were doing and including the use of games to do that, including finally the design of games to support analysis, training, research. Um, so I have um, had legs in both the kind of the, the fun part of it and the the utility part of games, and I'm of course a great believer in both. So that that's a little bit about about me. So uh, so this is a, a as fast as I can distillation of of what I consider my process of designing a simulation board game, such as a a, a game about history or a war game, uh, but a simulation board game. And I need to start with a few. Uh, definitions and concepts to make the rest of it make sense. If you haven't already in the world of wargaming, you may run into debates over whether this or that offering or project is really a game or is really a simulation. And I, I want to offer a little bit different conception. Uh, for me, sim simulation can be a, a, a controversial word. It just really, for me, means model. And I'm going to talk a lot about models because this is, to me, fundamental to the whole endeavor of historical game design. And what I try to show here is there are, there are many, many games that are not models, that are not simulations, and there are many, many models that are not games, but there are some models that are also games. And that intersection, simulation games, is what I'm interested in and what I think of when I think of a war game or a historical board game. And so what, what, is, what is my meaning when I say model? I mean that it is something that is a purposeful simplification of reality um, or of something else, but in history, we're talking about reality. And not just a purposeful simplification of something that is complicated, like a tank that has a lot of parts, but purposeful simplification, um, for example, through simplification through, through scoping of what we do and don't consider of uh, what we call a complex adaptive system. History, uh, human interaction, mass human interactions, whether it's economics, politics, war, um, uh, culture, uh, social affairs, what have you, um, is, is complexity. And what that means is that what is key to understanding the system is the dynamics of how things affect other things. And these ways that the things affect other things, actors and factors affect other things, create a larger whole that is different in kind from the parts. You can't just add up the parts. You have to look at how they affect each other. And I go into all of that because my sense is that, that games, when we're talking about human affairs, games are really, really effective as models of this complex reality, in particular because there are strategies at play that affect each other, and games allow exploration of the dynamics of competing strategies. And this is a basis for, for design. And we can um, model things in many, many different media. Some are games, some are not games. Maybe it's, maybe it's computational, maybe it's graphic. But here we're interested in one sort of one tool in the box 
And the, the point of this graphic is simply that it has advantages and disadvantages, strengths and weaknesses, but that tool is manual tabletop uh, models that are games. So manual means it's operated by the players and tabletop, I guess it can be on a floor, but it might have a board. I mean, I'm, I'm saying, I'm using the term board game, but uh, it might not have a board. It might just have um, figures or cards or uh, uh, player mats or whatever. But the point uh, that's important is that there is a set of rules that governs how players operate the model and they operate it themselves. So what is the process of going from our understanding of history to a tabletop model like that, a manual model? And what's important to realize here is that we have at the beginning as the designer, a mental model already. We have something in our head that is a purposeful simplification that we have gleaned from whatever we've read or seen or studied um, or considered. And if it's a complex system, we already have some idea, whether it's intuitive or explicit in our heads, of how actors and factors relate to each other uh, and how that, how that worked. So the question we're getting at here is not in history with games so much what happened and when, it's how did things work? Because a game allows us to um, examine what might've been the rules of a system and what it, you know, what it might've done differently and what it might not have done. What, what might've happened but didn't um, is, is more a question to examine with games than just you know, who, what, where, when sorts of questions. And so the challenge for us as game designers for manual tabletop models is how do we ourselves understand our own mental model, um, which while simplified is already pretty complex and translate that into mechanics on the tabletop that then other people can experience and react to and critique. So you imagine having something like this in your head because you've studied, let's say the war in Afghanistan for many years. You haven't necessarily expressed it even in a graphic way like this, but your, your job is to express it in a way like this, something that other, other people with you not in the room can operate and, and basically communicates to them uh, what you think the dynamics were that mattered. So my recipe is seven bits of that, seven aspects of uh, complex systems and the interplay of strategy in particular that have, I think, direct representations in board games, in manual tabletop models. So here's what they are, scope and scale, actors and factors, ends, ways, and means. So I'm gonna go through each of these seven in those three groups, uh, using as an illustration, one of my coin series games, Andean Abyss, which is insurgency and counterinsurgency in Colombia. It was actually the first of the coin series games. And what I'm gonna show is that, that these aspects of complex systems and strategy have these direct correspondence in the design of your game. Okay, scope and scale. So purposeful simplification, a model is, is a simplification always because otherwise it's the real thing. Now you might be simplifying by leaving out certain things and you might be simplifying by making it smaller. You might be simplifying by making it bigger, I suppose. But typically when we're talking about human affairs that involve tens, hundreds, thousands, millions of people, you are probably um, you are probably making the thing smaller. You know, if there are a thousand actors, you're going to pick out the few that are the most, most important. So scope and scale are decisions that you make in how you are simplifying reality. Scope is like, think of it like a boundary. Like we're, not, we're going to consider affairs in Afghanistan and not Japan because this is a game about the war in Afghanistan. Well, it's not that Japan doesn't, doesn't matter at all to Afghanistan, all, all things are related in, uh, in society. It's just, we're saying it's not important enough to consider and for, for purposes of, of, of accessing 
our topic and focusing in, we're gonna, we're gonna scope it out. And as soon as you, by the way, you scope anything out that actually has some effect, that simplification introduces an error. And this is why we, we often hear all models are wrong, some models are useful. So this is a very important decision, how you scope. And scale again is something like, okay, well, I'm not gonna have a life-size Afghanistan on my table. It's gonna be miniaturized. I'm gonna take lots of different groups and you know, basically put them together into just one to represent that actor or factor in a simplified way so that it's practical for us to operate that system. So you're really asking for the, as a designer, you're really asking and taking a position on what's really important. You know, the, what do I leave in? Because leaving stuff out is the key to purposeful simplification. So for example, um, if we are going to do something about insurgency in Colombia, you know, what are the boundaries of the board? If it's a board game, one of the first things you're probably thinking about is what's on the board? What am I showing? Is it a map? Is it a schematic? Is it a bunch of boxes? Uh, if it's a war game, typically it is a map because geography matters. All right, but it's not the whole world. Uh, what is it? Is it just a town? Is it, is it a continent? Is it a country? Is it some part of a country? Um, the, the, in this case, you can see I have just exactly um, scaled and bounded um, the, the geography to capture the entire country. So we're doing national level in, insurgency but to do so not on too large or too small a board, right? Uh, how big it is, what the, what the scale is to affect this scope on the tabletop. These are conscious, purposeful decisions. I, need, I wanted to have a, in this case, it was a standard uh, GMT games, uh, 34 uh, by 22 inch game board. And I wanted Columbia to you know, be big enough to hold as many pieces in a space as practically as possible. So that's scope and scale, but a pretty direct um, uh, uh, transference of thinking about the environment that matters for your, for your model of, of your historical setting to what's going to actually appear on the table graphically, the game board in this case. So just showing here some uh, simplification of features. Pipelines, energy was important in this conflict. So my lines of communication include energy pipelines. I'm obviously not including the entire road net, rail net, et cetera. I've very roughly shown here are mountains, here are fields. You know, here's a, here's a city I'm leaving uh, other villages off and so forth. All decisions of what matters enough to include and what can I leave out. Okay, actors and factors. So these are agents. Agency means you can affect something. What is it that in your system, who is it or what is it that affects other things in an important enough way to represent in your game. Um, and actors are typically, we're thinking about people or groups of people, leaders, interest groups, communities, uh, 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 you know, national uh, nations perhaps, um, different types of forces, but typically we mean in history, people. And then factors are other things generally about the environment that might be dynamic. It might be weather, it might be uh, prosperity, um, it might be uh, cultural trends, it might be religion, but what else can come in that interacts dynamically in the system with your actors? We call those factors. Uh, so this translates pretty well, not directly. Actors are typically, the key actors are typically players. So a cool thing about games is that human beings tend to make good models of human beings. And therefore, if you have key actors in history who are following strategies and innovating and um, using their, their imagination, their skills, their intelligence, and their emotions to affect the system, you can have players model those key actors, those key historical actors, um, pr pretty effectively. But this is a decision. There were, there were millions of actors in the conflict in Colombia. I can't have millions of players in a board game. I had to decide how many players, who do they represent? I'm obviously vastly simplifying um, the, the actors in the real system. If I say, well, there are four players and who's where they are. That's the key design decision. And then typically factors typically tend to be things that are external to the key human beings involved 
that might be um, techno technological innovations or tactics or acts of nature, or maybe they're outside actors like countries that aren't on your map and aren't represented by a player. I like to do those with uh, event cards um, or other uh, rules mechanics. There's a, a lot, there's a big tool bag for how to do that. But those are also important considerations other than your player, uh, your player count and your player roles. Okay, and final, the final three factors. So we've done sort of the environment, which is uh, scope, scope and scale, like the game board. We've done actors and factors, um, play, players and event cards, for example. Um, finally, the interaction of strategy, which um, is so important in historical systems. Everybody's, you know, everybody's moving and shaking to advance their interests, right? It's, uh, history is the interaction of all kinds of different asymmetrical strategies all the time. We all have interests that are somewhat overlapping, but somewhat competing, and it's how we act those out that, that drives uh, humanity forward. Well, you know, we really have to, we want to examine that, but we also have to simplify that a lot. And there is a uh, U.S. Um, Army definition of, and exploration of strategy that, that divides strategy into ends, ways, and means. Ends is goals, what do the actors want? Ways is how do they go about getting that? And means is what are they working with to do that? And these, uh, these three parts of strategy, ends, ways, and means, I think translate very well to, uh, to board games. So if we think about ends, what do the actors want? You've assigned players roles. Can you boil those roles for each player, whatever group, position, nation, individual, they're representing, can you boil that down, simplify it to victory conditions? Um, what's, the, what's the one or two things that that group historically really wanted to achieve um, or prevent or whatever? And that's the measure of that player's success. That's a really important decision in design because whatever victory conditions you set for your players, they're gonna, they're gonna pursue that, right? And that's gonna drive the dynamics of your model and your system. And if you have that off from, from let's say from history, you're gonna get some weird effects. Uh, hopefully you can, you can, you know, most groups or people don't do things for just one reason, but hopefully you can simplify it down to one or a couple things. And those become victory conditions in the game. Ways, this is a little more complicated, but basically what are the actors doing to achieve those aims? What are their tactics? Um, what, what, what actions can they take? Well, this translate to player, translates pretty well uh, to player actions in the game, mechanics that players are, you know, when they take their turn or it's their initiative or whatever, what do they actually do? What are they doing on the board? What are they doing with their bits and cards and dice or whatever? Um, if you think of that as the ways that they have, the actors, the players have to pursue their ends, it's a good way to get started on how the game mechanically uh, will work. And then finally, and, and somewhat more simply, means is, is the resources. And in a game, this can be unit pieces, it can be money, uh, it, it's any of the stuff that the, the, the players typically will maneuver, accumulate, expend uh, in, as they pursue their ways to achieve their ends. So that was the seven, I'll return to them uh, in, in a moment, but um, here are just some other random tips. Uh, there's really no substitute in board game design for seeing what's out there and building your toolbox by playing other people's games. It looks like you've already been doing that. Um, uh, I, you know, never stop doing that. I, I spend a lot of my time productively and enjoyably playing other people's games to, to try to learn uh, and expand my toolbox of mechanics because when you're saying, well, how can I translate historical actors' ways of pursuing their ends into mechanics of a game on the tabletop, it's, it's not an easy question to answer. The way, the, the way to answer that is you think about how other game designers have done that and then combine and adapt that in new ways, which is, after all, how in, all innovation works. Um, your mental model of whatever historical setting you're designing is probably more detailed and complex and intricate 
than you realize yourself. And it can be difficult to then, you know, to communicate that. And in a kind of an in-between way that I tried to show at the beginning of this talk is if you draw a picture, just graph out boxes and arrows, for example, before you go to what mechanics um, are going to be used, it can be helpful to go from unstated mental model to a tabletop system with specific rules and mechanics. Remember that your model is a purposeful simplification. Um, possibly your key decisions will be what not to include. Uh, and very often you might end up with, you've got a lot of stuff in it. And the, the main way forward to development is deciding what you can simplify and leave out. Because remember, your model is not going to be useful if players cannot access it and play it in whatever time they need to play it. And finally, um, unless you're some kind of Mozart or something, your, for your prototype, your first design is, is not going to work as you intended. So don't fall in love too soon. Test, uh, can't, can't run enough experiments on board games. Um, one of our sayings in the business about board games is never finished, only published. Okay, so that for, uh, for review were the, is the recipe of the seven um, elements of uh, game, board game design is model building. And if any of this is useful, you're free, of course, to have these slides. I understand this is uh, recorded and I look forward to hearing your reactions. Shall I stop sharing or keep this up? Thank you very much. That was, that was very interesting. Uh, sort of seeing, seeing how you do it and you probably distill things down quite neatly. I really like the point about don't fall in love uh, too soon. Um, I wish someone had told me that when I first started trying to write things as well. Just, here. Just because you just because you did it doesn't mean that you need to keep it or it's good or useful. Um, and you say, but it's, it's so much work and blood and sweat and tears. Well, yeah, it's it, it has it has to go. It has to be you know oversimplified. And thank you. You know, also talk quite a bit about the problems what you what you can't put in and maybe putting things in doesn't necessarily help. And I'm going to throw this over to students in the room to. To ask you questions if that's okay, um, and, and you know, perhaps give you some responses to what you presented to us as well. Um, in the, I know we talked a bit about the traditional board games where it's more of a military conflict and what you were able to boil it down to. If you had something a bit more on the political driven side, uh, what would you think is like the least amount of stuff um, that you could get away with? Uh, between like a two-player game trying to model a more political conflict where geography is a little bit less important. Uh, I think that's a great way to pursue it. And I, I, I you may find that it, the answer is surprisingly little. I don't know how to give a, like a, a borderline or a description to it, but um, you can get useful uh, insights and engaging gameplay from very simple uh, rules. There's a um, there's an old book by a, a British professor from the 1970s, and the book is called Playing Politics that, that I think about. And it has, I don't know, a, a, a dozen to 20 classroom games with very simple rules that just look at a particular aspect. We used, we used one of them for training political analysts that was focused on um, how part multi-part multiple parties take political positions along a spectrum to try to gain advantage against each other, and each of these games, these classroom games, is designed is like described in a few pages in this little little book, but and, and it's a great example of just you know boiling down and finding the essence of the dynamics of something, and this is true for for politics, but it's absolutely true for, I think economics for uh, military affairs, as you mentioned, and many other things. So I, I don't I don't know, I can't give you like a list of things that you need to have this, but not that. It really would depend, but we could have, a, I think, a productive brainstorming conversation if you had a particular setting, a particular political um, era or something, 
and particular aspects of it, particular dynamics that you wanted to bring out in the game, then we could start talking about, okay, what, you know, what ought to represent that and what do we really, you know, not need to consider and just hold, hold set, if you will. So I can't, I can't give a specific answer because it really depends on the case, but that approach that you just expressed of, you know, I want to look at, at politics in, in this, you know, this uh, place in this time, oh, you know, what's the least that I need to show is, is, is a great way to approach it. Realizing as you do that, that everything is interrelated. You can't really do a game about war without at least thinking about, well, what are the politics here that affect that, right? Or the economics. Um, and so I, I happen to, you know, be, be really fascinated with insurgency because it's one type of war where the politics and also the economics, the resources, you know, really come to the fore. And so there, you know, I can't just leave the politics out because it's a war game, but I, but I have to think about what's the, yeah, kind of what's the least to still deliver something that transports players into this insurgency. So a lot of the games you show were, were simulation-based games. A lot of them are from more contemporary uh, case study. Uh, how would you go about sort of mapping out a situation like in Kashmir, where you have three separate actors that all have claims before the scenario would theoretically start. How do you kind of balance it so that it doesn't seem like the game is being too biased to any one case or any one actor? Yeah, bias, it's a, it's a great question. So what I think as a historian or a student of history who is also a game designer, what I think you're trying to do is you are trying to show your audience, the game players, your best shot at how things work, really. Which means you are trying, as you, as you, as you suggest, you're trying not to kind of bias for one side or another you're going to all the sources you can from all the perspectives you can gain access to, which is no small feat. I have, I have for some projects, a lot of trouble getting enough of a perspective of a key actor because I don't have access to, the, to that material, you know, maybe because of language or who I know or whatever. Um, but you're doing your best. You're doing your, your, your level best to go past your own biases, which, you know, we all, we all have. Um, to, to examine how it really was as best you can in that game model, just as if you were writing a essay or a book or making a documentary film about it, right? And it should be no problem. I mean, all, all the games that you have in your classroom there do it. It should be no problem to have multiple actors who all have different visions for what they want, what's the, the future of Kashmir that as they see it and they pursue it as their ends that have different ways they go about pursuing that tactics they are and are not willing to do um, and, and different resources. So that really should not be the, the key challenge. Um, but then the question is, uh, what of your own biases, your own filter on those places, people, those events are now in the, in the model? There are some. There's no question. And so part of the experimentation and the play testing and the, and the feedback, you know, one issue is, is this fun to play? You know, if it's, you know, if, if you want it to be an engaging game, is it fun to play? You, you really don't know until other people play it and say, yeah, it's fun. Another might be very often, what, what are you tuning and calibrating for? Another might be play balance. It might be, well, for the three players, when they're sitting down, whatever victory conditions I've set them and resources I've given them and rules that guide their actions, you know, will each of them win a third of the time more or less because, you know, players like to have an equal competitive. Okay, so maybe you're testing for that. You should also be testing for the issue you raise. And that is, um, you know, is this, have I given the same amount of care and respect to representing each of the actors, the key actors here? Do you play testers know of any you know, information that I've overlooked? And so you can see uh, right away that the diversity of your test uh, testers is gonna be key to that. And, and this is, a, this is a, a challenge in the real world. 
is, you know, do we have, I'll tell you, so I, my, my co-design with Brian Train on Afghanistan, uh, a distant plane in the war in Afghanistan. And we were very fortunate to have a, um, a scholar in Pakistan, uh, you know, who happened to be a board gamer play tested for us. And it just, you know, gave us some, first of all, some excellent corrections on things that we, that, that might have been uh, misunderstood in the way we represented them in the game and to correct that, you know, for, for um, uh, South Asian Muslim audiences particularly, but also gave us some, you know, some warm fuzzies that we, you know, had a reasonable take in terms of showing the different sides interactions. Um, same with Colombia. I had Colombia, I had a Colombia, I had a playtest team in, in Bogota for Andean Abyss that helped tremendously. And, and others who had, you know, lived in Colombia, Americans who'd lived in Colombia, give me feedback and so forth. So if you can, you know, the conscious effort to get actually other perspectives on your game design itself, um, I guess is the best tonic against that. And then realizing at the end of the day, all you can do is your effort to make it objective and respectful because of course, that's why we have historians. His history is interpretation and you know who you are, where you sit and what you know means, makes a big difference in how you, you represent things inevitably. So like in intelligence analysis, objectivity is kind of like absolute zero or the speed of light. You know, you, 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 you aspire to it, but you have to also realize you're, you're the designer, you're in that, you know, you're, it's not gonna be fully objective in the end. Um, how do you balance sides that, while maybe are equal in, I'm gonna say, can't political, influence, but have very different methods of accomplishing that. So it's not a direct one-to-one -one ratio. So say um, the United States and the USSR during the Cold War, both had tremendous pull, but the way that they accomplished that was often quite different. Right. So the, the um, concept that you're describing is symmetry or asymmetry. And my view of life is it tends to be asymmetrical. And indeed, the case you mentioned of the Cold War is among the more symmetrical you know, conflicts in history. And in, even there, it's not fully symmetrical as you, as you correctly point out. So if you look at the game Twilight Struggle, and I mentioned that because it's such a popular you know, widespread um, game, um, it's, it's not exactly symmetrical, but the types of actions that the two sides are taking, what they're working with is pretty much the rules are the same. I tend to design asymmetrically, and that's true for actors, factors, ends, ways, and means, um, because they, they're, they're, I don't think any of them tend in na nature to align up symmetrically. So I like asymmetrical design as a better model. So if you look at, um, any of the coin games, they're well known for being asymmetrical designs. The different players tend to have different victory conditions. Like I'm achieving, I'm trying to achieve this that may not have anything to do with you and you're trying to achieve that. And it's almost like a race between the two, but I'm also gonna try to stop you from achieving what you're trying to achieve so that I can win, right? Those are asymmetrical victory conditions. And in the coin series, every faction has their own thing they're trying to accomplish. And you have to watch what all those other ones are trying to do, right? Then you've got different tactics, as you mentioned, for the US and the Soviet Union in, um, in the Cold War. So in a, the insurgency games, for example, the government you know, is moving its troops around and trying to discover guerrillas. And it's also using civic action to try to build popular support while the guerrillas are doing you know, ambushes and sabotage and um, and assassinating people perhaps or whatever. And so every player in the coin series has different menu of actions. Maybe it's overlapping, but each one has its own flavor that is part of the personality of playing that role. Different ends and different ways. And then finally, absolutely different, different means. So you're expending resources. Well, 
how do you know, how many resources do you give each player at the beginning? You can make that different. Um, how much? How many resources does each of these different actions cost? You can make that different. Um, how do the players during the course of play earn more resources to spend? You can make that different. And so you've got a lot of knobs you can turn to give each um, actor a different personality with regard to their ends, ways, and means that models the differences you see in history. How would you balance out a game like a side that's like in actual history guaranteed to lose? Like what would you like, how would you balance this they actually had a chance or would you just try to Like try to like make it so like that it's like historically accurate or give them the chance to do that. Like it's like the side that's guaranteed to lose. Yeah, I'm not sure if I fully heard um, all of the question. Is is the question what? How do we balance the game if the historical sides are imbalanced? Is is that the? Like, yeah, I think also the question of how do you balance the game if historically there's a, a, a losing faction. Mm. Uh, I guess deal with the question of predetermination or not right. um, in, in a game. Okay, so so two two parts to that. Um, first of all, if you have a contest uh, between sides, and of course, as a game designer, I I tend to see history as mainly you know competition between you know uh, different agendas, as I mentioned. So so historically, you're going to have one side came out better than the other, and you know that that's that's the, that's the fact, and what so what you're thinking about a game the, the a purpose of a historical game is to show what might have happened but didn't right you don't if if it's just telling the same story the same narrative the same winners and losers to the same degree but that's not a game right that's a story um a, a game gives the the players who are representing these actors agency meaning they can affect things they're pursuing victory and so this introduces right away a scoping decision for you as a designer. What is plausible? You know, because it's not the case that just that anything could have happened, right? That's not how things work. We can't say, well, Caesar might have, you know, flown to the moon and brought back an alien army to conquer the Gauls, right? That's not a historical game. But he might have failed in this particular battle, or he might have. Um, um, been less effective in dividing the goals against each other, et cetera, right? So that's not historical fact. That's your interpretation. That's a decision you're making as the historian trying to understand this system and how things worked, and as a game designer in saying, how far will you let gameplay diverge from the historical narrative? And so therefore, so within all that, winning and losing, you might say, look, in this conflict, there was no way, it's World War II, there's no way Japan is gonna win against the United States, it ain't gonna happen. They might last longer, they might cause more casualties, but you know, sooner or later, Japan is going down. That might be your assessment of the history. And you know, who knows, because it didn't go, it went a certain way, so we can't prove you right or wrong. So then you're not gonna allow Japan to conquer Los Angeles in your game, okay. So what then do you do? So here's the second question. You've made that decision. Okay, fine. That You're saying so, however you bound what can happen in your game is a message, an interpretation you're giving us as the players about your view of history and how it works. Now, how do I balance it? How do I make it interesting for the Japanese player? How do I incentivize the Japanese player to try to win the war, right? And so, that, that, so now there are all kinds of tricks to do that, knobs to turn. So one is the victory conditions. It's, there are a lot of historical games, a lot of war games in which as a side, as a player, you win the game when you lose, even though you lost the war, right? There are a lot of games on World War II European theater strategic level. And if you're playing Germany, if you're playing the Axis and you hold out to 1946, you win, okay? It's, it's, it's not because that's a win for Germany historically. It's you did a little better than history. So as a player, we award you the victory. So that's one way you can do it. What's the threshold? If you look at the coin series, there are a lot of thresholds in there that you need to get government support to 60. And if you get it or above 60 as the government, you win. Well, what does that mean historically? That's just an arbitrary point value that as the designer I've set 
to give you a, a, go, a measure of your success. You're aiming to get that much support in the country. If you do that by the end of the game, you're a winner. You know, you, you, you did as well as history, you beat history. So that's one way. Um, and, 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 and then you get into a bunch of conundrum. I don't know how much time we have, but if you set a threshold like that, that is not really what the actors at the time wanted to do, right? The, the, the Germans in World War II did not have the goal hold out to 1946, right? Their goal was to conquer Europe and win, right? Then you're starting to, you have to look for artificial behaviors in the game. And sometimes you just have to accept them to make an interesting competitive game out of, um, out of this imbalanced historical situation, or you have to get pretty creative and innovative to somehow um, you know, mitigate things like how human players in a game do not exactly simulate historical actors because they're, 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 they're good models, they're good simulators, but not perfect, or historical hindsight, I know you know, if you're playing Japan in the Pacific and you know the U.S. has the bomb, you know, you can you get into these difficulties of, of player hindsight if you're doing historical games. And those are very difficult answers and design challenges. And so all I can offer there is, you know, look for that in, in your testing and be conscious of that. And it may just be, sorry, this is a one way that our purposeful simplification is wrong, but it's still useful. It's still a good examination of history. Or you start searching for what are the clever ways that I can uh, minimize or get past those um, um, the the inaccuracies from those simplifications. Uh, yes, I just wanted to ask if you have a game that uh, say you are focusing on four players, and so you, in terms of the actors, you build around those dynamics between four opposing factions, but you want to leave possibility for there to be say two players or three players so that there's more variability uh, how do you make it so that you might not have all the factions that you necessarily planned on having but you can still have dynamic uh, format that will make sense and are interesting yeah there's a, a common a common challenge and if you look You'll see my answers to that if you look in the coin series, which are supposed to be playable from, you know, one player up to up to four, and how and there are really I think three ways I can think of to do that. If you have a situation, you've identified uh, a system, a historical situation, and and where you can boil it down effectively to four key actors, and it's a four-player game, but you want to also allow three players or two players, let's say, to play that. So there's kind of three ways you can do that, I think. First is you can look for what are natural further simplifications. And that is, for example, in your four players, you probably have clumped together people who were working together to a degree, but actually separate because everybody is. I mean, every everybody in your classroom has overlapping interests, but you also have competing interests, okay? Um, and that's that's how society is. So for example, uh, one of my players in Andy and Abyss in the Columbia game is the FARC, guerrilla group. But there was another major guerrilla group at that time, the ELN. And the ELN kind of shows up as a couple of event cards as an external factor. But really when I do my FARC resources, um, and set up and all that, the FARC player is actually representing both of those groups in alliance, okay? And the cards just come in to say, here's where the alliance is working really well or not so well, right? As a little factor. So your four players probably already combine some different groups. So now can you further simplify that and say, well, of those two player roles out of these four, two of them, are more natural allies. And if we play a three-player game, we're just gonna presume that those two players have, in the four-player game, have formed a permanent alliance and we represent them with one player. And then you've gotta compensate the other players somehow for that advantage, because that's typically an advantage to whoever you're putting together with the two roles. 
And the way I tend to do that is whatever the victory conditions are for each of those two, that player playing both together must achieve all of them. You're right. You can't just leave one of your two partners behind. So you give them a bigger, harder mission to accomplish. And now you've down to three players. Okay. So that's one way is can you further simplify effectively combining two player roles into one? Another way is you could say, well, we have these four factors, these four actors in our system. If, and we're of course leaving other actors out. We didn't have room for a fifth player, but there is this other thing. We just left them out. And that's a purposeful simplification. We don't need, these were less important. Can you do that with these four? Can you go further and say, you know what? If we just don't include this fourth role at all, and we only look at the interactions among the remaining three, does our, is our model still useful? Does it still work? It's maybe not as good, but it's still, uh, 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 it still takes us, it still transports players into that setting, even with just those three actors. And a lot of games do that. And you'll see, they'll just say, you know, you just ignore that fourth role and the game will still work. Obviously you have to test that. So that's the second way. The third way, and this is the toughest and something I attempted, I think with mixed success in, in the coin series. And that is you can automate um, one of the players roles where you, you, you know, you've designed the game for four human players, but now you're going to say we can substitute for one or more of those players with an algorithm. So a flow chart, a deck of cards that prescribes actions, die rolls, and a chart or matrix that says what they do in a simplified way. And rather than having a human being represent that actor, you're now having game mechanics in effect, algorithms and randomization uh, you know, represent that historical role that usually would be a player. And um, there just realize your game is probably already doing that with less important actors, external factors, you know, through event cards and random die rolls and things like that, where it really also represents other humans. They're just humans that aren't important enough for you to have represented as one of these four players. Now you're going to do that for one of the three. So there's still some dynamism there. This fourth role is still present and doing things and maybe even reacting just in a, a simpler way without the, the magic of the, you know, the innovation and creativity and play that your human players will bring. So that's the third way to do it. So can you, can you combine two roles into one and still have a historical model that seems plausible or valid? Can you just eliminate one or more of the roles and still have your model work more or less? Do you want to go to the trouble of automating uh, one or more of your player roles so the game actually dynamically runs that role? Those are the three ways I can think of. Thank you. Well, I, I have a question. Uh, one of the things you talked about in your presentation was the purposeful simplification. Uh, and I find actually with my local your designs that I've played, you actually you know, add more complexity into things that are often presented historically as binaries. Uh, so I'm thinking about Cuba Libre, where it's not, not as simple as one side against the other, but there's actually multiple factions. I wonder if you could talk a bit about the, the consciousness of deliberately trying to model history, uh, present you know, historical analysis and uh, a discussion with multiple, where you have multiple factions running in what is often presented as just a sort of one side versus the other. The fact you're showing is, is more complicated than that. So I think there's a lot of power in that. Um, but it's just sort of, you know, you're thinking about like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about, about you, but in my experience, the more I read about the details of any historical affair or historical setting, the more complex I find out it was, right? Like the more, and the more questions you ask, the more answers you get, the more questions it raises, typically when you're researching complexity like, like human affairs, as, as in history. This is typically true in intelligence as well. That is to say, you know, the reality almost when I set out with any kind of setting or topic, I should expect that the reality really was much more complex than I think it was, right? Or that we commonly think it is. And then if we look at how any media um, 
have portrayed this for broader consumption. And this is, you know, movies, books, games, you know, you name it. Probably it's being portrayed in a less complex way for the necessities of the medium and the 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 and the and reaching the audience than it really was. And so if we are doing a game design because we want to explore something, we want to, you know, transport players to this this setting in a way that they will refine their own model because the, the players all have some idea too. I mean, probably everybody sitting down to play Cuba Libre, you know, has heard of Fidel Castro and there was a revolution and they're probably playing the game because they already know something about it, right? And the game, you know, my purpose with the game is to give them kind of my model or mine and Jeff Grossman's and my co-designer in the case of Cuba Libre so that they can synthesize what they already think about how it works with what the game communicates to them when they play it. Because we know when it's understanding complexity, synthesis of diverse models gives you a better model, right? That's, you know, almost mathematically proven. And so that's kind of a, a purpose of the communication of the, of the game design is I want to show you some dynamics that you might not already have seen and again, what I have found is when I look at history and I read about history, it's ample opportunity to do that. There's always these delicious, interesting complexities and dynamics, multifactional aspects to it, if we're talking about warfare or politics, that have not been commonly presented and and almost, you know, and 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 especially within a, within a board game, right? Maybe it's been presented in a in scholarly books and in movies, but it's not been presented in a board game. So the opportunities to do that in historical board games are, I think, everywhere, and 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 is an important thing that we can accomplish with a historical board game design. Does that does that get at what you were raising, Alistair? Yeah, it absolutely does. Uh, kind of selling the focus of playing games. But I, I said to students. I played some games that sort of my mind things in a different way. So the Polix guy, you know, I, I loved Asterix as a child. Uh, it was it was this small breath village, and so I knew I had context there, but actually sort of unfinished the game. Um, one of my colleagues was it. I was a little scared off by the uh, size, but you know, I guess you're not a game runner. Robots can look daunting. But but you know, and it's important to keep in mind you're you're when you're designing it, and I it's a, it's just a foot stomp on something I've already said, but it's it's a very it's key and it's a liberating uh, idea as a designer. You are going to be showing more complexity in your design than what has been shown in other games. That's the reason you're doing the design. It's still going to be simplified and probably extremely simplified, right? Even if it's more, it's still way short. And, and, and so, first of all, give yourself a break. Your, your game is not going to cover everything. And it's not going to produce perfectly plausible results every time. You're aiming for that, but you're not going to achieve that perfection. Um, so, you know, let yourself off the hook. But be conscious also uh, when you, you know, make, make claims, be conscious of the fact that no matter what complicated rules or whatever you put in your game, you're still going to fall short. You're still going to fall short because it's a model. I think we've run out of questions at our end, um, but thank you for, for answering and very fully and presenting. Um, once again, thank you for joining us and, and taking time. Uh, it's been very insightful. I've, I've got a lot of, uh, seen a lot of nodding heads, uh, uh, but thank you very much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure to have Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for all the uh, questions and observations and good luck with your design projects.